Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Gallup. He's Assistant Professor of Psychology and the Director of the Adaptive Behavior and Cognition Lab at SUNY Poly. His research spawns a variety of topics including contagi contagious behavior and comparative neuroanatomy, brain thermoregulation and vigilance, collective behavior and social cognition, aggression and sexual conflict, the evolution of cooperation, sports and athletic competition from an evolutionary perspective, biomarkers of Darwinian fitness and the effects of neuromodulation on adaptive responses. So Dr. Gallup, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ricardo. Okay, great. So today we're going to focus our conversation mostly on the evolutionary psychology of aggressive behavior and also toward the end a little bit on yawning. That's a very interesting topic that I haven't covered on the show yet. So uh, before we get there, let's start then with the with aggression. So from an evolutionary perspective, uh, I mean, what are the kinds of behaviors that we classify as aggressive? Yeah, so aggression is ubiquitous across the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. So in non-human animals, aggression is, is easily spotted as some kind of physical um, uh, direct forms of aggression. So we might define aggression as a behavior that's intended to cause harm on another individual. Um, and this is easily uh, spotted with forms of physical aggression. It's very overt um, and um, easily identified. Uh, within humans, um, as well as some non-human animals, um, we all can also see more uh, non-physical um, and, and even indirect forms of aggression. So uh, when it comes to our own species, we can be aggressive to other individuals without any physical uh, violence whatsoever. We can um, uh, utilize verbal aggression uh, directly, uh, or we can use more uh, circuitous routes of aggression um, that we might call indirect forms of aggression, such as uh, uh, gossip, uh, rumor spreading aimed at uh, diminishing the reputation or assessment of rivals. And we can also um, uh, utilize exclusion and isolation um, uh, of individuals to serve it as an aggressive behavior. Um, and uh, we see a lot of, of this in um, my research is primarily focused on aggression in adolescence, and we see uh, the, many, the many forms of aggression take place uh, among humans emerging in adolescence, and then that continues uh, in, into later stages of the lifespan into adulthood as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so is it important for us to distinguish or to establish a difference between aggression and violence? Because I would guess that some of those behaviors that you described, particularly the ones that are that have more to do with uh, verbal aggression, for example, would not be considered uh, violent. Or am I thinking correctly or not? No, I think you are. Yeah, no, I think we tend to, to consider uh, violence as being uh, falling within the realm solely of physical aggression. Yeah. Um, although. 
um, in, in recent years, there's been greater interest on the on the potential roles of, of non-physical aggression in, in, in producing harm, psychosocial uh, harm. And uh, we know that that even, um, you know, non-physical forms of aggression can produce negative consequences uh, to individuals. But, yeah, I think it's I think we can make that separation um, with violence being a physical form of aggression. Mm-hmm. So since we are talking about the evolutionary psychology of aggression, I guess that going back to the basics, I mean, are there any big sex differences when it comes to the forms of aggression that males and females resort to in our species and maybe in others as well? Yes, uh, there certainly are. Um, so across the animal kingdom, we see that overt forms of, of direct physical aggression are more prominent among males uh, of the species. And um, that's true for humans as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, the sex differences can be explained by um, sexual selection and parental investment theory. Um, so uh, within sexually reproducing species, the sex that invests less into uh, reproduction on average is usually a larger, shows a, a larger sexual dimorphism in body size and is also more aggressive and competes more, more strongly for mating opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that play out uh, in some classic examples in, in non-human animals. Um, but it also is the case for humans. There is a clear sexual dimorphism in body size, um, in uh, human males and females, and differences in um, uh, upper body uh, uh, muscle mass, and uh, the use of physical aggression differs. So males are more physical, physically aggressive uh, they engage in more overt forms of direct physical competition, and uh, this emerges fairly early on in the lifespan, and is something that that continues um, through adolescence and into early stages of adulthood. Um, however, I would like to speak to this in that saying that despite this difference in the use of aggression, because physical aggression is is uh, so easily documented. Uh, it's been long thought that males in uh, in general are just more aggressive, that men are just more aggressive than women, for example. When in fact, um, some research that I've done and others have done have have suggested that there might not be a sex difference in the the use of aggression. There's just this big sex difference in how women tend to aggress others. And this is where we see those those indirect and uh, verbal forms of aggression come into play. Mm -hmm. So women are much more likely to use these non-physical forms of aggression um, in, um, in encounters with, with their peers. So they're more likely to use verbal aggression uh, to demean, diminish, embarrass others when in direct contact. So we would call that a direct form of aggression, although it's non-physical. And then uh, women are, are much more likely to use indirect forms of aggression, such as spreading rumors, uh, gossip, uh, this kind of relational aggression that we see, and uh, as well as aggression that might take place in terms of exclusion or isolation. And uh, one reason for that um, is uh, I think that can be readily interpreted from from sexual selection and parental investment theories as well. Because women uh, invest more into the reproductive act, the costs, the potential harm of of physical aggression and violence are are greater uh, for women. 
and therefore uh, utilizing less, uh, less physically aggressive tactics that still might be very effective in enhancing relative fitness uh, provide greater advantages for women. Mm -hmm. uh, would that also be because women, I mean, in terms of physical traits, I mean, for example, they have less muscle mass than men and there are other physical traits that render them physically weaker than men. Uh, yes, the, the sexual dimorphism that I spoke to, yeah, it's certainly um, males uh, on average are, are more likely to, to, I guess, be successful in aggressive interactions. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, this brings up an interesting point with aggression is that the vast majority of aggression that we witness um, is occurring within a single sex so that men are aggressive to other men and that women are aggressive to other women. So uh, the, um, the, the, you know, the fact that women might not be as physically uh, imposing as, as men are on average doesn't necessarily hinder their ability to be successful physically against other women, uh, yet we still see that women, you're more likely to use uh, these indirect non-physical forms of aggression. Mm -hmm. You made a very important point there, because uh, is it the case that the sex differences apply to both intrasexual and intersexual aggression? I mean, the, do, uh, do the sex differences that you describe stand for both types of aggression or not? Well, um, I mean, there are clear instances of aggression between uh, men and women, and uh, there are clear examples in which uh, that type of aggressive aggression can be physical or uh, non-physical. Yeah. Um, but on average, e even across um, these contexts, men are more likely to elicit physical forms of aggression uh, that lead to violence than are women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about uh, specific phases of development that men and women go through, because I guess that there are particular periods in our life where we tend to be more aggressive than in others, on average, of course, uh, and also perhaps display or make use of certain forms of aggression. So in uh, when it comes to adolescence, I mean, is there something that is uh, that distinguishes them in terms of the forms of aggressions they tend to resort to from, from other periods of people's lives? Yes. Um, so the adolescent period is um, obviously a rich developmental period, both physically and uh, mentally. And uh, we see that aggression begins to peak during early stages of adolescence. Mm -hmm. So uh, adolescent uh, interactions in, in bullying behavior and other forms of maybe traditional kind of day-to-day -day aggressive interactions uh, sh show a clear spike during this adolescent period. And uh, that is likely related to uh, the onset of puberty development of secondary sexual characteristics, initiation in, in romantic interest and uh, uh, dating involvement, um, as well as increased, you know, cognitive, uh, social cognitive abilities and interest in acquiring status, status within uh, peer groups during adolescence. So I think that the rise in adolescence that we see, or the rise in aggression rather that we see during adolescence 
can be readily interpreted from an evolutionary perspective as individuals are kind of beginning to enter a phase in their life in which reproductive competition is becoming really important and status attainment is also really important as it relates to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we see uh, uh, that adolescent aggression, again, is, is really uh, consistently tied to reproductive um, uh, motivations as well as having uh, tangible reproductive outcomes. So interest or uh, rather uh, involvement in aggression uh, during this critical period of, of development is associated with a kind of adaptive uh, dating and romantic uh, outcomes uh, among adolescents uh, here in the United States, as well as has been documented in other cultures. So uh, men and women during adolescence or boys and girls uh, during adolescence that utilize aggressive behavior toward their peers, toward their classmates, um, mostly intrasexual, I should say, boys being aggressive to boys and girls being aggressive to girls, uh, tend to have uh, adaptive outcomes in terms of, of, of dating. They're more likely to engage in, in uh, uh, romantic relationships with opposite sex peers. Um, we see that women um, engage in relationships sooner, uh, those that are aggressive, and they tend to have longer dating relationships. Um, uh, boys that are aggressive to other boys tend to have uh, uh, more dating partners uh, during this adolescent period. Um, and uh, aggression is a social behavior, right? So if you are being aggressive, that means that there is, there is someone on the other end of that aggression. So the victims of aggression uh, tend to have negative uh, outcomes. So we, we've talked a little bit about the psychosocial outcomes and uh, depression uh, that can arise as a result of frequent aggression. But in addition, this translates into um, uh, maladaptive outcomes in terms of their involvement in, in the dating or mating arena as well. They show diminished reproductive opportunities or just um, uh, maladaptive types of uh, frequent dating with, with short duration uh, that can have negative consequences, particularly for women. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's um, a clear kind of developmental uh, trajectory that we see um, for aggression and its involvement during adolescence, and it's nicely coupled with uh, beginning stages of involvement romant in romantic relationships. And aggression continues to stay relatively high in uh, young adulthood, so that we see rel uh, relatively high levels of aggression in the in the 20s, um, and uh, then it begins to decline into the 30s and then thereafter. Uh, we also see differences in the uses of aggression uh, developmentally. So uh, physical and direct aggression uh, in general, even non-physical uh, direct aggression that might be verbal, uh, is increased during these early stages of, of development, uh, meaning, you know, adolescence and early adulthood. And then thereafter, uh, those, those direct forms of aggression, likely due to the, the fact that they have significant reper, uh, reputational consequences, right? There's social stigma to being aggressive. Uh, it's, it's kind of universally viewed as, as something that's not acceptable. Um, uh, so we see that after a certain period, the, the, the benefits associated with being directly aggressive maybe are offset by the, these reputational social costs, and then we see more indirect forms of aggression uh, come in place. Mm -hmm. uh, don't uh, children, I mean, uh, children that are going through infancy and childhood also exhibit uh, aggressive behavior toward their peers, for example? 
Yeah, so aggressive behaviors can emerge really early on uh, in humans. And so even um, you know in infancy and, and toddler groups, there can be the development of social hierarchies and you know physical, usually physical forms of aggression that are taking place uh, at those stages. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you think that this knowledge could have some implications in terms of how we deal? with bullying, for example, in schools, because since these aggressive behaviors serve an evolutionary function, I think we could say that, then maybe it's really hard at least to try to suppress or eliminate at least some of these behaviors, right? Yeah, um, I think that's a really important point, right? So. The fact that aggression is just ubiquitous and consistently emerges around these times suggests that it has some kind of uh, biological or evolutionary function. And this persists even though right, uh, students are taught from a very early age that aggression is, is very bad, it's not to be tolerated, and that we should be cooperative and pro-social. And despite that, despite the social stigma of aggression, it persists. So I think eliminating it completely is a very difficult task. Um, however, um, I think the insights that we can gain from this evolutionary perspective can help inform uh, bullying prevention uh, strategies and ways to, to kind of curb or minimize aggression uh, during this stage. So one possible way to do this would be to really incentivize and uh, enhance the uh, the social consequences of being uh, someone that is pro-social and non-aggressive, right? The aggression likely continues to persist within peer groups because of the benefits and the advantages that the aggressors uh, obtain uh, from perpetrating these acts. So if there's ways that we can kind of build into the social structure, which I don't, <laughs> I don't admit to knowing uh, these these quite yet, but if there are ways that we can build into the social structure and the adolescent kind of network, that you know, being the opposite of aggressive is going to come with advantages, and we can we can really kind of promote that. Uh, that you know that might be one type of uh, of mechanism. We also know that. That um, among women, for example, or adolescent uh, girls, that um, physical appearance can be a trigger for aggressive behavior. So individuals that uh, are physically attractive and attract the attention of, op of the opposite sex are often targets of, of aggression. Um, and therefore, that, could that, that knowledge could help um, maybe policies for um, uh, adolescents wearing certain types of clothing or, or uniforms to make things more or less uh, consistent across peers uh, to diminish, diminish these you know, overt differences in physical attraction or, or display. Mm -hmm. uh, could we say that aggression plays an important role in human development? I mean, is it the case that if we were to completely eliminate all forms of aggression, at least during uh, infancy, childhood, adolescence, that, I mean, boys and girls would be missing something when they reached adulthood because they didn't go through this sort of 
ways of interacting with other people of their age? Do, uh, do we know something about that? I'm not sure that we do know a lot about that, but I think there is um, there's reason to suspect that engaging in, in these negative encounters with peers could help make individuals more resilient, okay, and stronger being able to deal with, with uh, various uh, challenges later on in life, right? We don't want to, I think there's good research to suggest that we don't want to, you know, shelter children from negative experiences completely, right? So although uh, being a victim of aggression can have negative effects if it's prolonged and um, uh, inconsistent, right, in a, in a, in like a bullying context, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, interacting with individuals that might be antisocial uh, can help uh, children develop cognitively and understand social cognition in ways to to effectively deal with other people. It can help individuals kind of navigate uh, the social world and and learn about ways in which they can acquire resources, develop allies, avoid individuals that might be might be a threat. So I think you know these dynamics um, in, in childhood and adolescence ultimately help prepare individuals for adulthood in many respects. Um, but I think it's a tough argument to make, right, that we should we should let just kids just be as, as aggressive as possible because it might it might have some of these advantages. Um, I still think we want to be on the side of trying to diminish it um, uh, due to the negative uh, effects that it can produce. Um, but it's never going to be completely eradicated. Yeah. So at a certain point there, you mentioned the fact that when people reach adulthood, usually, or, or I mean, a little bit after young adulthood, let's say, their levels of aggression drop. Does that happen regardless of the circumstances they're in? I mean, uh, I, I guess I would focus on uh, their relationship status because uh, I've read some studies, I don't know if this is, is still true, but they said, uh, for example, that when men marry and have children, their levels of testosterone drop, and that would be one factor that plays a role in, in their aggression also dropping. But that would mean that they would have to be in a relationship uh, that they see is long term or will, will last a long time and also uh, have children. So if, if, for example, boys or young men don't go through that, is it the case that their levels of aggression also drop? Because I would guess that from an evolutionary perspective, it would be, I don't know, perhaps important for them to be a little bit more aggressive until they get a partner and settle and things like that. Yes. So uh, aggression is very context specific. And decline that we see is, a, is kind of an average population decline uh, that occurs in the late 20s and into the 30s. Um, but I would agree with you um, that uh, individuals, and particularly males, uh, that are, are single, that, that have not um, uh, married, are going to be more likely to continue uh, uh, patterns. Or their aggressive behavior is at a group level is going to be higher on average than, than males that are married and have developed families and have children. And this is uh, in part due to the engagement 
uh, and uh, competition that those two uh, groups of, of men might be in on a day-to-day basis. Males that are single uh, might be more likely to engage and compete directly with other men, while males that, that, are, that are partnered might you know, no longer kind of pursue those types of, of activities. And then, as you indicated, there can be you know, major changes um, uh, endocrinol- uh, in, through endocrine changes in testosterone uh, following the birth of a child that may further uh, modify behavior. We know that there's a positive correlation between testosterone and aggression. It's difficult to, to know the causal relationships there and how context plays a role. But yeah, that should uh, reduce aggressive uh, behaviors in general. Uh, so yeah, uh, aggression is very context specific. And the type of context may also um, modify the type of aggression that's used, right? Um, because of the, the social stigma of aggression in certain situations, it's, it's more adaptive to uh, potentially use uh, indirect forms of aggression to uh, minimize any, any type of reputational effects um, from the, you know, on the perpetrator. But in other scenarios, direct forms of aggression uh, might be better. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Uh, it's a good point to bring up that context is, is very critical to understanding aggression. Mm-hmm. And it's critical also to understanding it because, I mean, I think I've read this in Sapolsky's Behave, the book. Uh, at a certain point, he talks there about uh, the role that testosterone plays in our behavior. And he mentions the fact that it seems that testosterone is not uh, does not directly cause uh, aggressive behavior or violence but it depends a little bit on the context i mean if what gives you or what increases your status for example is for you to be let's say an intellectual or someone that is able to distinguish himself Uh, in terms of acquiring resources of other kind that don't imply aggressive behavior, then, uh, I mean, those people, men particularly, that are more successful independently of the way they reach that position, uh, also tend to have higher levels of testosterone. And that, in those cases, don't really correlate with higher levels of aggression, perhaps competition in other ways, I guess. That's right. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your work, when it comes to aggression, you talk, there, there's a particular study that I read where you talk about the relationship between end grip strength and dominant behavior. So could you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, so some lines of, of research I've explored have focused on uh, hand grip strength in particular and its relation to aggression, social dominance. And uh, my interest in hand grip strength came from uh, the fact that hand grip strength is a really good indicator of overall physical strength. So as it turns out, if you're going to just obtain a couple measurements of, of upper body strength, Hand grip strength is, is, is the one uh, that's most useful. It's, it's positively correlated with uh, all sorts of other uh, indicators of physical strength uh, in, the, in the individual. And it's really easily obtainable with, through the use of a hand dynamometer, uh, which, are, which are readily available. They're often used in medical settings, but now more commonly now in, in uh, social science and basic research settings because of the value that this measure has has shown um, in uh, behavioral sciences. So uh, 
hand grip strength as a measure of strength is useful, right, when we assess uh, overt forms of aggression and physical aggression. We might think that individuals that are uh, more formidable and have, have greater strength might be more likely to display that aggressively and use that to their advantage in, in competitive contacts with peers. Um, and uh, another really interesting thing about hand grip strength is that as I mentioned, it's reference to, to medicine. Um, it's a really good indicator of overall health and vitality uh, among individuals. So for both men and women, measures of, of grip strength are positively correlated with uh, health, uh, longevity, uh, recovery, post-operative recovery from surgery. They're associated with other physiological indicators of health, like bone mineral density. So some basic measure of, of physical strength is really a good cue to health status, okay? So that's really interesting. And from an evolutionary perspective, we know that, that hand uh, strength, grip strength, has uh, kind of an, an interesting um, uh, heritage, right? So in an arboreal environment, uh, grip strength is, is essential for, uh, for daily life, right? Your ability to, uh, to hold yourself suspended is living in the trees is absolutely essential. And we see remnants of this in our own species. So babies that are born, um, even moments after birth, show this uh, classic grip reflex, where if you stimulate their palm or their fingers, they'll clasp it down. And there's nice uh, images of this. this. The grip strength of, of newborn babies is so strong that they can hold themselves suspended in air, even just minutes after birth which suggests that this is uh, kind of a, an innate reflex from our evolutionary history in which babies had to cling to their mothers um, in, in order to survive. Uh, so from an evolutionary perspective, grip strength is very interesting. And then when we apply it to aggression, right? So there's a clear uh, sexual dimorphism in this measurement. It's, it's robust, in fact. So while grip strength is positively correlated to health outcomes, both for men and women, men consistently um, uh, outperform women on measures of, of physical strength and grip strength in particular. Uh, and this occurs throughout um, uh, the lifespan emerging in later childhood and early adolescence. So among very uh, young children, no differences in grip strength are present. And then at the uh, emergence of, of puberty, we see these differences really uh, become quite dra uh, dramatic and they persist throughout the lifespan. Uh, so some of my research has examined how this measure of physical strength might be related to aggression and social dominance, and in fact that we show that it is. But interestingly enough, it is only the case for men. So grip strength is positively correlated with uh, uses of aggression and uh, dominance over, uh, over peer groups for adolescent boys, but not girls. And then among uh, young adult populations, we, we find the same thing, that, it, that grip strength is positively correlated with dominance and aggression uh, for young men, but again, doesn't really, doesn't really uh, contribute to variance in those measurements for women. And then further research suggests that, that aggression, uh, or rather that hand grip strength is positively correlated with other aspects of body morphology in men, such as uh, broad shoulders, um, uh, physical appearance, like face, uh, facial attractiveness, is possibly correlated with hand grip strength. Um, other indicators of formidability. Uh, so uh, aggression or hand grip strength, rather, is also uh, positively uh, correlated with reproductive success and measures of 
of sexual behavior uh, and even um, uh, reproductive fitness in some populations. So there's a, there's a good deal of evidence to suggest that this measurement of, of strength is, is not only really useful in the behavioral sciences, but, it's, but through this research, it's kind of suggested that physical strength, in particular hand grip strength, has been uh, under directional selection during human evolutionary history uh, and uh, maybe continued to be elaborated uh, in contemporary populations. So uh, because physical strength plays a role in male-male competition, it's likely been selected for through uh, intra, or, uh, yeah, intrasexual sexual selection. And because uh, indicators of uh, grip strength are, are positively correlated with physical attractiveness and sexual behavior, it may also have been selected through uh, uh, forms of, of intersexual selection. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, uh, research on hand grip strength suggests that uh, uh, in hunter-gatherer populations, for example, um, among uh, the, Tanz uh, the Hadza in Tanzania, uh, hand grip strength is positively correlated with hunting success. Um, and as a result, we see that hand grip strength corresponds with, with uh, reproductive fitness um, and success among the men in, the, in those populations. So it's a really interesting uh, measurement. And uh, it's, it's been continued to use, be used in the evolutionary behavioral sciences and consistently shows you know, positive correlations with social and sexual competition among men and really no relationship with those uh, outcomes among women. So it's a really sexually dimorphic trait, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of research uh, still yet to be done examining the full range of, of variables that this measurement predicts. Yeah, this is all very interesting. And uh, at a certain point when you mentioned the correlation between end grip strength and uh, health indicators, certain health indicators, uh, could it be that uh, what's behind that is the fact that people that are m the most physically active also uh, tend to have bigger and grip strength uh, and then that physical activity also tends to correlate with certain health indicators. Yeah, so... Um... I, so there is evidence that there can be some, through the use of exercise and interventions, there can be some uh, influence on one's grip strength. So if people exercise uh, their forearms and upper body, that you can, you can obtain some incremental increases in grip strength. Um, but this measurement is fairly constrained. So it, it's modified by environmental variables in adulthood only modestly. And it has a really significant genetic component. Um, so the heritability um, of hand grip strength is, is really, really high um, in studies of, uh, of twin studies, which suggests that, you know, this is a trait that has a strong biological component. Um, so I don't think that the range of, of health outcomes it predicts uh, in adulthood can be um, really vastly explained by, by exercise and environment, although those are going to play a role. Mm -hmm. So there's... There's sort of a genetic predisposition, maybe, to have both higher end grip strength and maybe other positive 
else indicators? Yeah, yeah, I think these are these are going to be related because um, te uh, testosterone is positively correlated uh, with hand grip strength and and lean muscle mass mm -hmm. general, which is associated with with uh, with health. Um, so I think that um, you know the relationship between these between these variables, grip strength and and health. It has a clear uh, connection evolutionarily for why strength was was important in under, under ancestral conditions. Uh, yet we we can see that that strength is still important to kind of basic health and physiology in in contemporary populations uh, as well as it relates to to other you know variables that would be related to to strength and 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 underlying health. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting for for women the um, uh, the heritability estimates for hand grip strength are uh, half that uh, for men. So there's a significantly stronger genetic component uh, for upper body strength measurements uh, in men than there are women. And uh, and additionally, the age related declines that we see in strength. So uh, strength measurements in both men and women peak in the late 20s and, and uh, uh, middle 30s. Mm -hmm. and then they, they begin to climb thereafter into, into older age. The um, age-related declines um, uh, for, for men are, are found earlier compared to women. So there's, there's, although there's a, a significant difference in that men are physically stronger uh, robustly at their peak, there's a there's a more rapid decline that occurs thereafter that coincides with with uh, some of these endocrine changes and decreases in testosterone that we see that may also be coupled with contextual differences um, in um, in marriage and, and having children some things we've talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So let's talk now about yawning. So uh, what is the evolutionary function that yawning serves, if there's any, of course? Yeah, so um, yawning is ubiquitous. Or yawning are, are very similar motor action patterns where there's this gaping of, of the jaw, um, extended gaping of the jaw uh, that in terrestrial vertebrates appears to be accompanied by, uh, by this uh, uh, respiratory component. Uh, there's really it's been documented across vertebrate classes, uh, which suggests that um, it emerged um, a very long time ago during vertebrate evolution, perhaps emerging with the first jawed fishes. Now, since its um, its origin, we see that it has been highly conserved across lineages, and that suggests that that it likely serves some underlying uh, function uh, biologically. Right, um, and some of my research has examined what might be the, the physiological function to yawning. Um, now, yawning takes a number of, of uh, different forms. Okay, its its most uh, primitive and ubiquitous form are are these non-social uh, forms of yawning that we would refer to as spontaneous yawns, yawns that can emerge physiologically in the absence of of any social inputs. Right, and uh, these types of spontaneous yawns are are likely the origin of this behavior. And then any socially um, uh, elicited forms of yawning are kind of a derived uh, component that has evolved uh, more recently within social species. Now, what the function of yawning uh, is 
it, uh, it's, it's kind of still being um, examined, right? Despite, despite the fact that humans yawn every single day and begin yawning within the womb, uh, so it's very, very common behavior, uh, researchers don't know, know that much about it. Uh, so I, I was very interested and, and took on ambitious projects to try and examine the physiological function of yawning. And uh, through this work, basically, we've been able to kind of pinpoint the, the major physiological consequences of this motor action pattern. So yawns can be described as this extended gaping of the jaw, stretching of the mandible, that is, uh, occurs with peak muscle contraction, with a temporary pause, so it's delayed and extended, and it includes a deep inhalation of air, and then there's a rapid closure of the jaw and, a, and an expiration of air, right? And the coupled components there, that, that really extended muscular contraction and stretching of the jaw with that deep inhalation of air serves to increase blood flow to the skull. So we see dramatic increases in, in arterial blood supply, and that action also forces venous return uh, away from uh, the skull. So we see that one primary function, uh, which is localized to this motor action pattern, is intracranial circulation. Okay, And uh, from intra enhanced intracranial circulation, that's going to produce a, a number of, of uh, physiological effects or consequences. And my research has examined the potential role of yawning and uh, brain cooling and providing thermal, uh, thermoregulatory effects neurologically. Um, so uh, brain temperature is determined by three variables. Uh, it's determined by the rate of blood traveling to the brain, uh, the temperature of the blood traveling to the brain, and metabolic heat production that's going on within the brain. And the motor action pattern of yawning alters those first two variables. It increases the blood flow to the brain and modifies the temperature of the blood within the brain. And it does so in part by forcing uh, hyperthermic uh, uh, blood uh, away from the brain through venous return while simultaneously introducing cooler blood from the lungs and extremities. Now the, the respiratory component of yawning that includes this, this deep inhalation of ambient air um, we have proposed that that serves a cooling function in promoting countercurrent heat exchange. So uh, the, the, the contact of that uh, uh, inhaled air with nasal and oral uh, surfaces co comes into close contact with venous, venous blood supply that could subsequently cool arterial blood traveling to the brain uh, through convection. And we've examined the, uh, the connection between yawning and brain cooling in particular through a number of, of studies uh, comparatively in non-human animals but also within uh, humans in the laboratory. And all of our research suggests that indeed there are uh, thermoregulatory uh, consequences to yawning and that it, it, as a result of the changes in blood flow that we've discussed and that you can modify uh, the expression of yawning, its frequency, um, through um, thermoregulatory manipulations so that cooling of the brain or the carotid blood supply, which we've shown cools the brain um, through thermal imaging, uh, reduces yawn frequency. And 
uh, alternatively warming of the blood uh, traveling to the brain or by applying warm compresses to to the skull those increase yawn frequency and similarly we've shown that uh, uh, ambient temperature uh, manipulations modify uh, the frequency of yawning so just as would be expected, if yawning is a, is a mechanism for cooling, if you rise ambient temperature and you warm the environment, you should increase yawn frequency. And we've shown that reliably both in, in humans and non-human animals. And similarly, if you drop temperatures down um, uh, below a thermal neutral zone, cooling mechanisms should be, should be shut off and warming mechanisms would be triggered. And we've shown that in colder climates, and uh, cold temperatures, yawning is diminished just as we would expect. And then the last line of research to support this connection between yawning and brain cooling in particular is the fact that we've, we've monitored uh, brain temperature in laboratory animals and we've been able to, to demonstrate clear uh, associations between yawning and intermittent changes in brain temperature. So that preceding yawning events, we see stark rises in brain temperature in uh, rats, for example, that have uh, thermocouple probes in their brain. And then once they yawn, uh, which appear, their yawns appear to be triggered by these rises in temperature, and that once they yawn, we see these corresponding decreases in temperature thereafter. Um, so uh, collectively, these, these findings really kind of suggest that there's a clear association between yawning and thermoregulation, uh, particularly within birds and mammals. Now, is it uh, neurologically, uh, yawning uh, appears to be uh, under the control of the hypothalamus, and the motor action pattern of yawning uh, itself is, is, is kind of a brainstem uh, um, uh, process. However, because of the, uh, the purported function of yawning in promoting uh, intracranial circulation and cooling to the brain um, at large, we have proposed that uh, animals with, with larger brains uh, should have longer yawns and, and uh, uh, yawns that are more powerful in order to produce the same physiologic uh, effects. So as brain size increases, uh, uh, heat, dissip heat dissipation, um, uh, incre the, the needs for heat dissipation, effective heat dissipation, increase as well. So uh, animals should be expected to display these, these longer yawns um, as a result. And we've done comparative uh, studies uh, now, uh, a number of comparative studies across uh, vertebrate species, mammals in general, as well as uh, smaller uh, taxonomic, taxonomic scales of vertebrates, such as a single family of mammals, and then most recently within a single species of domesticated dogs, which have a wide variation in, in brain morphology within a single species due to artificial selection. And we've shown in all cases that animals with, with larger uh, brains, um, species or um, uh, breeds when it comes to dogs, have consistently longer yawns on average, even when taking into account uh, body size uh, differences. Um, and this research further kind of supports uh, the idea that yawning serves an important neurological function, in its, which is consistent with uh, the research on yawning and brain cooling. Mm -hmm. So these brain cooling that yawning supposedly promotes, uh, is it associated with 
certain specific uh, physiologic functions in the brain? I mean, do, do you know anything about that? Yeah, so um, we know that uh, certain contexts um, increase or modify brain temperature, right? So um, stress and anxiety are known to increase uh, brain and body temperature, and they're also um, commonly documented to elicit high-frequency yawning. Um, the, the cooling that, are, that results from uh, yawning is widespread. So we have demonstrated this not only within particular anatomical regions uh, through the intra-couple uh, uh, brain temperature probes, but we've also been able to monitor the the, the, the cooling effects at the surface of the skull using thermal imaging cameras. So through the use of thermal imaging, you can monitor uh, changes in the surface temperature um, uh, uh, in laboratory animals as well as, as humans. And we've shown that the cooling that occurs following yawning uh, is something that can be documented at the level of, of the eyes and the ears and uh, areas that have um, a high uh, sensitivity to temperature because of uh, circulatory uh, uh, tissues. So the, it appears that the cooling is, is really widespread um, as a result. Yeah. Uh, so one last question. Is yawning really socially contagious? Because, I, um, I mean, we have this idea that when, when one person yawns, it increases the probability that someone next to her will, will imitate that behavior. Is that true or not? Uh, it is. Um, within our species, and then so far about a half a dozen other species have been documented to show what's called contagious yawning, these, these socially triggered yawns. Um, and in our species, they can be uh, elicited, and it's been demonstrated in the lab, that they can be elicited through uh, visual stimuli, seeing someone else yawn, uh, auditory stimuli, combination of those two, but also just reading about yawning or thinking about yawning can can produce this uh, this response. So uh, this is what I was talking about before with this more recently derived um, uh, feature of this response. And uh, so far, contagious yawning has been documented clearly in humans. Is often studied in humans and um, some other species like chimpanzees. Um, domesticated dogs have been shown to yawn contagiously in response to, to human yawns. So there's this interspecies uh, contagion that, that may be a result of, of um, uh, domestication and, the, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, selecting for um, psychological traits in, in dogs where they cue in to, to human social cues. Um, and then um, recently, uh, even uh, a bird species, uh, parakeets, have been shown to, to yawn contagiously. So um, I think as time goes on, we'll find that, that more and more species might, might show this, this trait, but it's clearly limited to, to highly social uh, species and may have taken on some, some additional derived uh, function. Okay, so if... Uh, if spontaneous yawning serves to increase uh, circulation to the skull that might have these, these thermoregulatory um, uh, outcomes, right, and cooling the brain, that's going to have uh, uh, consequences in promoting arousal, perhaps increasing alertness and mental efficiency, right? So the fact that yawns occur during behavioral transitions and states um, uh, suggests that it plays a role in state change 
and under certain contexts in particular, might serve to promote uh, arousal and alertness. Now, if that behavior um, spreads uh, through the group via contagion, uh, it could serve uh, to promote, you know, kind of overall collective vigilance um, and, and improve awareness of, of the collective as a result. So um, we're beginning to examine, uh, you know, some of these questions in the laboratory, but right now uh, there's no clear definitive understanding of, of why contagious yawning evolved or what function it serves. It also could simply be a byproduct of um, uh, social cognitive uh, mechanisms in highly social species, right? This is elicited kind of automatically and reflexively, and it, and it might not necessarily serve a function either. So there's research going on right now to examine some of these things. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. Gallup, let's end the interview here. Before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Um, so I have a personal website um, at the State University of New York Polytechnic Institute. Um, and uh, from there, they can they can access um, you know some information about uh, my research interests, and also you know I have a Google Scholar page, and um, you know Twitter um, that that you know I post to and and um, and uh, can be used as a resource for contacting me. Yeah. Okay. So I'll be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It was a real pleasure to have you on. No, it's, a pl it's all mine. Thank you very much for the invitation. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So, to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to consider making a pledge on Patreon. I have the link in the description box or on PayPal. You can also find the links there. And uh, otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters on PayPal. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Baroga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunde, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alanius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert uh, Ruinacio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santrobano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslam Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, 
Ethan Solon, Romain Roch, Dmitry Grigoriev, and Diego Londonio Correa. My producers, Isar Weber, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardas Friends, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.